This episode brought to you by BRE Promotions. Whether you're just starting out or evolving your brand, BRE Promotions offers you expertly crafted disruptions that'll take you to the next level. BRE Promotions, we make your business shine. Visit us at brepromotions.com to schedule your free consultation. Hello, I'm Brian Bowden, host of Nobo Booming. I've been an investigator for over four decades in this strange, the unknown, paranormals, aliens, UFOs, you name it. I've come across almost everything. Some turned out to be true, some turned out to be false. But one case in particular has always given me a strange curiosity and interest. And recently, I had the opportunity to speak to the individual that this case happened to. What's coming up is over three hours worth of video interview that I did with an individual that had probably one of the greatest, not most important interactions with a being not of this world. There's a lot of controversy regarding this person and the entire subject, but I think there's a lot of truth there too. I'm not gonna judge. I'm not gonna tell you what to think or what not to think, but I'm gonna ask you to listen. And because it's over three hours, I'm digesting this information is gonna be a little bit more difficult. What I'm gonna do is break this up into three segments so you can understand what's going on. Again, I'm not trying to sell you. I'm not trying to promote. I'm just letting you know that you have an opportunity to hear something which I think is one of the most significant events ever. You are the one that has to make the decision. So sit back, put your headphones on, and hopefully enjoy. No, Bob Boomy! Hi, I'm Dr. Jonathan Reed. I'm with Nobody But Me with Brian Bowden. Years later, I went and talked to them. I showed them what they had developed. I explained it and they were fascinated by it. They knew more about that kind of thing than I did. but again, that's years later. Let me continue the story. Sure. <laughs> so, so on the on the second day, there was a knock on my front door in my house, and there were three people standing on my porch: two men and one woman. All of them dressed in black suits. Ah. All of them with black ties. Even the woman. And very white skin, very pale. Um, I went to the door, said, hello, you know, and they said, how are you, Dr. Reed? And I said, I'm fine. And obviously I wasn't. I was sick. And I was irritated because, you know, that's all I needed. I figured it was some religious group canvassing the area. But... um, they said, well, we, we want to help you. We know what's happened. Where is your dog? 
and I I reeled at that thought. What what are they talking? How do they know? What is wh who are you? You know, and they actually walked in my living room without me inviting them. I mean, they just kind of pushed them themselves in in a way that was so subtle I could hardly believe they were in my living room. Very interesting. And they were they were saying we're from a group called the school. We handle things like this for people who don't know what they become involved with. And we will we will take this burden off of you. And I said, "Bird, what are you talking about? You you know, I didn't invite you. I don't know who you are." You know, get the hell out of my house. Right. And I was angry, and I felt sick, and I didn't want anybody around. And they said, okay, but the next people that come won't be so nice, and you'll probably wish you would have dealt with us. And I said, I'm going to call the police. You know, I'm sick of this. And right. they said, that's okay. The police are with us. And I looked outside where they had parked. And there was a police car, Seattle police car, parked right behind wow. them with the policeman sitting on the hood, leaning against his hood. Again, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know what this meant. Uh, the next day, I called some people at my work at the University of Washington Medical Center where I worked some colleagues. I said, I'm not going to be able to come in. I'm sick. I've got this terrible flu symptom and they said okay and then I asked a couple of them, I said do you think you could come over do you think you could come by my house you know and I lived within Seattle and it was a fairly close perimeter to for them to come over so a couple of them would come over and I would invite them out to my garage and I would say I need you to see something these were all learned people right these were all people who are medical doctors and or facilitators. So they'd look and they were astonished and they were in awe, some of them, and didn't really know what to do. And I kept asking, what do I do? And nobody would say, you need to do this or you need to do this. Nobody would say that. You know, the MUFON people that I finally went and met with in a coffee shop the next few hours said you've got photographs you've got video and I took copies of some of the photographs so that I could show them and they said can we take this can we make copies of this we'll help you we'll help you deal with I didn't tell them I had the body oh. I just told them that I had this experience but they were helpful they were they sounded like they knew what they were talking about and I wanted somebody to help me right because because I certainly didn't know what was going on uh, the next few hours, one thing would happen after the other, things that made no sense. My partner who worked with me at the medical center called me and said, Jonathan, are you moving your office? And I said, no. And he said, well, there's four men here taking everything out of your office, all of the fire wow. files all of the books, all of the chairs, the computer, everything. They're moving it somewhere, and they won't tell me where. And I said, these aren't, I didn't send these people. I don't know what you're talking about. So somebody was dismantling my office. 
And, and like I said, things were happening one thing after the other. And, and I had, again, I, I was fearful. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was sick. I didn't know what to do. So I just kept doing whatever felt like I should be doing the next thing. Uh, people would run, a, run me and Gary off the road. A van was following us around when we drove to different places in my area. A van that we called the porcupine truck because it had so many antennas on it that a, you know it was a dark van, windows all blacked out, but all these antennas on top of it. Well, it literally ran us off the road one time. And then people would start breaking into my friend's house and not taking anything, not disturbing. People had money on their table. It wasn't touched. Alcohol. They had firearms. Nothing was touched, but yet their houses were broke into. My parents' house was broke into. My girlfriend's house, her parents' house, uh, three or four of my good friends. Nobody had any idea what was going on. People would call the police. They'd say, okay, file a report, and that would be the end of it. But they broke into my house, and they started taking things. They took my cameras. They took my the prints that were there. Luckily, we had taken copies and taken them to Gary's house, thinking, well, he's going to do something with his copies and keep them safe. Well, luckily, he did. He mailed them away. He put it all in a box, took it to the post office, and mailed it to somebody. And I had no idea of that. And it's a good thing he did, because if he hadn't have done that, you wouldn't be seeing any of this. Right. There wouldn't because have been any proof. They came into my house, finally broke into my house. I drove back one evening. I had been over to his house. I drove back, and there were three vans in my front yard with men going in and out of my front door with hand trucks taking everything out of my house. And I went away, called the police, went to a friend of mine's house, stayed there for a few hours, and when I went back, they were gone, but so was everything else in the house. They took everything. They took all the furniture. They took the beds. They put holes in the walls and the floor and the ceiling. They took the toilet off the floor and the sink, and the water was running everywhere. They had been looking for something. They were probing for something. There were even holes in the grass, like something had been stuck in the grass every so many inches. Did you, it was insane. Did you get a chance when you saw them uh, break, well, breaking into your house and taking the things from your house, did you ever contact the police at that point saying, hey, my house is being broken into, I'm watching yes, it right now? Yes, that's that's what I said. I, what was their response after, at, after at, all this? We'll, we'll send somebody out right now. And I, the place that I called from was, say, two miles away, so I couldn't see it. Right. You know, I couldn't see it until I finally went back. But I went later, years later, with a policeman friend, and we looked all this up, and there was no record that anything had been filed, that I had called, nothing, no record of it. Also, we looked for the records of other people calling for people breaking into their house, my family, my friends. There was no record no to be record found. No record whatsoever. Okay. They so were erasing anything, you. 
anyway, I went to the garage that night and I figured, okay, well, they've, they've got the body They've you know, I'm sure I went into the garage. They had pried the inside door right out of the frame of the house. Why they did that, I don't know, because it, the lock didn't work. But the, nevertheless, the whole door jam was sitting aside the garage. They went into the garage. They took the freezer. They took all my tools. They took a cord of cut wood that was laying on the floor of the, of the garage. Why? Why would they take that? That doesn't, it just didn't make any sense what they were taking, but they took everything. The one thing I noticed, the very last thing I noticed was there was, it looked like there were wet, small footprints on the garage floor, the cement floor. And it went from where the freezer was right to the wall, not to the window, not to the door, but right to the wall, like something had walked right through the wall. And I thought to myself, maybe he got away. Maybe they didn't get him. And I had hoped that. I had hoped they didn't get him. So, so at, at any point in time when you, while you had this, let, let's stop for two seconds. When you yes. had the body there and, you, and Gary's involved and some of your other colleagues, did you, it, I mean, I've seen pictures where you look like you were doing almost like an autopsy is on, on this body. Did you, you took <clears throat> well, some physical samples from them, from the, the okay. creature? Let's let's get this accurate. Okay, sure. Not not autopsy unless you cut them open. Right. Well. So what I did was called a topical examination, and that's where you feel through the 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 body. You feel the breastbone and the different ribs. You count the ribs. You know. You look at the clavicle. You look at you look at the structure of the body the best you can without cutting it open. Right. Well, that's what I did. I documented it. I wrote a book. It's in the book. We'll talk about that yes, later. Yes, we're going to definitely get into the book. But during that process, during that process, Gary and I did this topical examination. We photographed it where I opened the mouth. I opened his eyelids. You know, I, you can see the pupil in his eye. Um, we took pictures of all of this. I had an X-Acto knife in the garage, one the box cutter. Right. Okay. And I thought, okay, I'm going to cut his suit off. This was day two when I did this. Day two meaning the second day that I brought the body home from when I encountered it in the woods. So on day two, we're doing this topical examination. I'm doing all these things. So I take the box cutter and I figure, okay, I'm just going to cut the suit right here to right. make an incision and pull it back. Well, I stuck in the X-Acto knife, I pulled it down about six inches, and it closed itself. It literally sealed itself back up wow. like a zipper. I did it again, I cut it in another place, and it just sealed itself right back up. And I did it the third time, and it wouldn't allow me to cut it. No matter how hard I pulled on that knife, it would not allow me to make the incision. So, amazing, right? Right. Really amazing. <laughs> well, in 2006, NASA came up with a self-healing fabric for their suit, their spacesuits. Isn't that amazing? Very interesting. They doing the exact same thing. Now, remember, when I was doing this, it was 1996. Right. So if people think 
that you know a I've, decade I've later up well guess what i guess i was pretty accurate and and, the, yeah. and this is something we'll address too because um i there's a lot of naysayers and there always be critics but the fact Absolutely. of the matter is when you did all this and it's all documented yes none of this technology and this knowledge we have now existed when this was taking place so no. he would have had to have been a time traveler to know what the future was like get that information bring it back and set it all up and right. that's not and technically there, virtually there are, impossible, but there are countless little innuendos throughout right. the last 22 years that I've been living with this that have happened just like that, where I knew way back when that I had dealt, dealt with some kind of material or some kind of item when in reality, whoops, my dog is barking. That's a good sound. Um, I'm used to it. Now I'm good. No, no, no. We're good. We're dog people here. So okay. dog sounds are always, always awesome. Keep Thank going. So anyway, long story short, um, it's just, it's, it's on the, on the third day, this is an extremely important part. Remember right. I had been taking the body out. I had been showing it to colleagues. I had been putting it back in the freezer. I addressed the wound in its head because I didn't like the bone flap flapping all over so I actually put a piece of duct tape on it so it wouldn't move around it was what I had it was what was no. handy right um, anyway I had planned another person another really good colleague I had called him and said please come over talk to me you know I want to talk to you about my work I want to talk to you about what's been going on he said fine that's great I will be there so I planned to have him come over, I set out the table in my garage, an overhead light, so he could really look, really see right. this, like I had been doing. So he called at the last minute and said, Jonathan, I'm not coming. I don't want to deal with this, and I don't think you should either. Now, I had not told him anything. I had not told him what I had in my freezer. But I was extremely angry because I was planning him to come over. I needed his help. Right. Well, he canceled at the last moment. So I went out to the garage, folded up the folding table, put the light away. And as I was doing that, I heard a sound coming from what I thought was under the freezer, kind of a scratching or rubbing sound. And I thought, is it, is it a rat in my garage? Is it mice? Or is it the compressor going out on the freezer? And if that's the case, I'm going to be in trouble. Right. And I, so I, I thought, okay, well, I can find out if that's if the freezer is breaking down because if you open the lid, there's a thermometer right inside that tells you, you know, what temperature is at. And if it's going up, then obviously it's it's not working. Right. So I thought nothing about it. I walked over to the lid, picked up the door like I had been doing before, and all of a sudden this thing sat up out of the end of the freezer, the thermal blanket, and screamed at me with such violent tones that it almost forced my chest back against the wall like somebody had punched me with such force and such sound he was screaming this sound. He was alive. He was totally alive and probably now going to kill me. I ran in the house. I didn't close any doors. 
you know, the freezer might have closed. I don't know. And I just sat there shaking, scared to death in fear of my own life and what had happened. Right. And I called Gary and I said, Gary, you got to come over. Something, something else has happened. And he says, well, you know, my God, what, you know? And I said, just come <laughs> over, just come over. So he came over and I told him what was going on. He, he said, Jonathan, he, this isn't happening. You are having a breakdown. This cannot be happening to you. And I said, I told you what had happened. Go look right. for yourself. And he walked out there and he opened the freezer and I stood in the doorway and it screamed bloody murder at him. So much so, again, it forced us both back into the garage and we ran out of the door and into the house and again just looked at each other like, what in the hell are we going to do? You know, this is things going to kill us. You know, you, right. you tried to kill it. It's maimed. It's in terrible pain because it's screaming what are we going to do and and gary i mean we we talked so fast i mean we didn't know what we were doing he said well we take a shovel and we could hit it we could knock it out again or you know or kill it you know right and and i said i don't want to do that i i don't want to i don't want to do that i've already killed it once and which made no sense but i thought it was dead I mean, for three days, we were taking it out of the freezer. And now it's screaming and sitting up, and it's got this wound in its head. And I, I, I said, we've got, we've got to do something. I, I've got to do something. So I, we both limped our way back to the garage right. and opened the door. And I went over to the freezer, and I, I actually knocked on it with my hand and to see if it was going to come out and attack us, but it didn't. And I slowly opened it, opened the freezer, and it just turned its head inside the freezer and made this weird, chirpy, kind of squeaky sound, almost like a dolphin sound. Very interesting. But really, really, really injured, really quiet. And I, I literally said, Gary, I don't know what to do, but I said, we need to help it somehow. And, and we didn't know what to do. And, and I, I just sat there for probably 10 or 15 minutes saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I, I hurt you. I'm sorry. What can I do? You know, and I, w- I was babbling. I was not doing it in expecting a conscious response. Right. But yet I was apologizing for what I had inflicted, the pain, um, because now it was awake. Now it was alive, and it was moving, and it was looking at me and it with these big, oval, huge eyes, and it was injured, and I felt sorry for it. You know, I was still angry about the loss of my dog, but I felt terribly sorry did, for it. Did you feel—I I mean— it sounds like you had an emotional. Do you think there was a connection emotionally to this? Well, there was in the next few hours and the next few days because I continued to go out there with and without Gary, and and just sit twenty feet from the freezer and and talk, just talking like I'm talking to you, saying, 
you know, I'm sorry this happened. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm sorry that I inflicted this pain, but it was in self-defense of my dog. And I was trying to explain maybe to myself the what rash. had actually transpired. Right. And in doing so, I got the feeling that it was aware. It was aware of me talking. It was aware of that there was some kind of emotion, I think, that it was picking up on, if nothing else. Because while I would speak, it would quit chirping. When I would stop speaking, then it would chirp and click a little bit. And I would answer, you know, saying, you know, again, can, can I help you? Can I get you some water? Can I, you know, and, and it would chirp and click a little bit and then it would stop and it would let me continue to talk. So right. yes, think it actually was aware yes and later on I knew I knew that it had telepathy I knew that it was putting parts of my mind and reprojecting them into my mind things that happened when I was a little kid in the past things that nobody really knew except me and right. it was replaying that to me in my head like a movie and it was like feeding off of those those events and and seeing if I was comfortable with that when I was a child was I was these were happy scenes and it seemed to find comfort off of that and maybe trying to give me comfort because I was so distraught and I was still sick right and, and you know, so yes it started to communicate I truly believe it did and <clears throat> by the ninth day when I went by the house and the the vans were there and they were ransacking my house. I went back, like I said, and found that he was gone. He was, and we started to call him Freddy. And I know that's weird, but Gary named him because he said he looks like my old boss, you know? <laughs> and it was just sarcasm. But, but anyway, we called him Freddy and Freddy was gone. And I figured one of two things, either he escaped on his own because I saw the footprints or these people had got him. Right. Well, the next day, because of everything that was happening, I left town. I got in a car that was a friend of mine's car. I took all the cash I could scrape together, and I left town because of what was happening. Because these men in black and the people ransacking our houses and driving us all off the road and following us and our phones were tapped and we knew it we knew all that was going on so I took some evidence Gary took some evidence we went in two different directions I had no idea where he was going he didn't know where I was going and I actually drove from Seattle to Vancouver Canada which is basically a two-hour drive right just due, due north uh, and and I went there because as a child I spent a lot of time in Vancouver with my dad and my mom because they had friends and, and uh, work issues up there so you know we'd spend Saturday and Sunday four or five times a year there so I knew the downtown I knew Stanley Park which is a great big wilderness park and, and it was comfortable it was almost like a second home Right, but and it's also your it's also your turf. So if things are going to go down, you are well, more aware of I, I it than, knew, than something, I knew somebody else. Things were happening so bad that they were they were harassing my parents, and my parents were elderly. You know, they were 
they were in their mid 70s at that moment and i wanted to take everything away from what was destroying everybody's life and i figured it's because of me if i leave they'll leave these other people alone and pretty much that did work that did work for a short time and uh, i survived i mean i w- i was homeless for 10 months and i didn't have any money um i didn't want to call anybody because i knew chances are they'd find out where i was because of that or get other people in trouble and involved so i stayed up there and literally uh lived in the forest and on the street and i i had to do things that i am not proud of just to survive because i didn't have any food i didn't have any money you know i lost about 50 pounds um uh, i was a mess but i i knew people were even looking for me up there so it was it was a real harrowing situation and and but i didn't know what else to do what was happening to gary at this point um, at that time i gary went one way i went another we so, didn't know where each other was and it was better off that way in the long run right well exactly and so much had happened in those 9 days very quickly that we had we knew that we were under surveillance we knew they were either coming for the body or coming for me and and enough was happening where it just didn't make any sense and there was a time now remember i worked in a huge metropolitan hospital and we had good communication with the four other hospitals in the city and i had an opportunity because i knew I knew what was going on in these other hospitals. There was a celebrity in another hospital. And I knew who this person was only by his reputation. And I was looking for answers. I was looking for some kind of help. What do I do? Where do I go? Uh what what do I, you know, who can I trust? Which basically nobody. So I went into the hospital and talked to this guy who was a patient. who was an astrophysicist who had been involved with things that had to do with the possibility of extraterrestrial life and this gentleman was Carl Sagan wow and he was in the hospital in the Swedish hospital in their cancer unit where he died shortly after i saw him uh you know within a a, a week or so but I asked him straight out what am what should I do this is what's happened and at first he was kind of arrogant and said you know get out of here you know don't bother me you know and then I told him the whole story <coughs> I told him who I was and why I found out he was there and how I could do that and the inner hospital communications are pretty uh, amazing even back in those days and he finally said close the door and i closed the door to his room and he said i believe everything you've said because i know i know they've been here i know they've been here for probably centuries and they've made me say things publicly that i'm ashamed of but he says it's true and he said there are people who can help you and he gave me he gave me a phone number on a piece of paper just a little piece of paper and when i left 
Seattle and went homeless, I had that paper with me. I had it in my wallet. And I got to a point where, like I said, I was homeless for 10 months. I was stealing food. I was breaking into into people's cars trying to survive. And I'm not proud of that. Right. I, I hate that. I was raised better, but right. I had no choice. You were put into that spot. I wasn't myself. Right. I was something else. He he gave me that phone number, that paper, and said, you're going to get to a point where you're going to want to trust someone, and this person you can trust. And he said it in such a way that at first I didn't believe him, but I, I thought, well, he's sick. He's trying to be nice. I'll take this. I'll, I'll write it down. And I took it and put it in my wallet. And I was sitting in the basement of this burned out apartment where I had been existing. And I had that paper in one hand and I had a gun in the other. And I was gonna end it. I was I was right. so tired and so exhausted and fed up with my life and what had happened. I brought so much pain into my family and my friends. I didn't care anymore. And I, I just figured I'm going to kill myself. And I sat there with that gun in my hand, and it was loaded. And I looked at that paper, and I thought, okay, I can kill myself anytime, but I might as well call this. And it'll prove to me just what I thought, that it was just some bogus phone number. And so I went to a phone, a pay phone, that's an actual rotary payphone that they yeah. have on the <laughs> Yeah, we have to explain um, to some people that they have these boxes right. where you can go and call people. <laughs> right. And and so I went and I called the phone number and the second that they picked it up, I did not say a word, but they said, Jonathan, we're here to help you. Whatever you need, we're wow. here to help you. And I immediately hung up. I immediately hung up because I figured somebody's watching me. Somebody's going to just get me. They're going to throw me into a van, and they're going to, you know, beat me to death. So anyway, I walked around, and this was out in the middle of public square, and just watched, and nobody was around. Nobody bothered me. So I went back to that phone, and I called it again, and the person on the other end of the phone said, we know you don't trust us, but let us prove to you that we can help you. Right. What do you need? And they said, we'll get you food, we'll get you shelter, we'll get you somebody to help you do whatever you want. And I said, I want money. I want some money. Give me some money so that I can eat. And I didn't even say why. I just said, give me some money. And they said, how much? I said, $100. You know. Right. And I knew they wouldn't do it. I just knew that it was some jive thing. But I said... $100 in an envelope underneath the bench next to this building in this square where it's in public. And I want to see nobody around. Certain time the next day, I went there. I stayed for hours waiting for somebody to put it under that bench. And I knew they're, they're not coming. And I went over and sat under the bench and it was already there. It was already taped underneath the bench. Wow. I took it out, and there was the $100 and $20 bills. And it just had a note in it and it says, whatever you need, call us. We're here for you. And, of course, again, I didn't believe it because I didn't believe anybody. 
You know, I'd been living for 10 months, being chased, being hunted like a like a wild animal. And uh, so I, I waited a few days. I called back. I said, you know, uh, I need this. I need this. Can you deliver this? And I was arrogant. I was angry. And, and I, I'm sorry, but I it was the state of mind and what was going existing at the time. But they came through. They did it. They did exactly what I asked. And each time they would say, do you need us to get you a hotel room? Do you need medical attention? We can do it all in a private place. And of course, the first thing that went through my mind is, well, they're going to kill me. Right. You know, these people are just trying to get to kill me. But you know what? I didn't care because I was ready to kill myself. You know, you, 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 know, you reach I, your limit, right? So it's exactly. like, yeah, whatever happens, happens. I mean, they were torturing my parents, my friends, and I had heard about this through through channels, you know. And I thought, you know, I'm just tired. I just don't want to cause all this problem for everybody else. And so I I told them, yeah, I, I need some help. I need some medical attention. And they said, okay, you tell us where and when and we'll be there, you know, however many people you want or however less people you want. Uh, and do, they asked, they said, do you want us to bring one of your relatives? We can do that. And I said, no, I don't want to, you know. And so I made arrangements at a hotel, certain time, certain place. They were there. They had a doctor with them. And I knew he was a doctor. I knew what he was doing because I'm a doctor. Right. And and I uh, I let them help me. I let them feed me. They gave me clean clothes. They let me stay there if I wanted to. If I didn't want to, that was okay with them. They just kept saying, we're here for you. And then finally, one of them said, Jonathan, if you want to talk about what's happened, you can with us. We know what's happened. We understand. We have dealt with a lot of people that have gone through these kind of events. And... I ended up calling these people the Alliance, right? Because they were well organized, they were well healed, they had finance, they had means, and they could do whatever you wanted them to. And it wasn't any question for them. It was it was kindness, and it was like a military run operation. It's really, really professional people. And I knew after a few days. This is better than living, you know, behind the dumpster. And and right. I started to trust them, and they started to tell me who they were, and and what they could do, and what they'd done all over the world for people, and that this was a process. Right. And that I needed to know that their process was one of educating the public to know that the alien presence is a reality, and that it's been there for centuries. Even though we don't publicly talk about it at that time, he said it will become a public right. awareness of what's going on, which is what's happened today. It's, it's happening right now, this, this public exactly. awareness. Yes. So this alliance that we have, that, that you're now interacting with, they're telling you that this is what they do on a global scale? For others, yes. and and there are others like you. They, they told me that that what had happened to me was very important, but it wasn't an isolated incident. 
that there were many other people who had experienced things similar to this but different and that if I wanted to they would bring me to those people and let me talk with them they they counseled me in a in a very professional way as if I would do it for some patient and told me that it was important to to work through this not only in my mind but physically they suggested that I make uh, like a journal and write things in order so that I could remember what had happened because there was so much that had happened and all cathartic all perfectly made tremendous sense to me because right. that was what I did with other people so I started that process I let them heal me I let them bring me back to health they told me things I needed to understand about who these people were that was were chasing me that they were they were not all evil, not all bad people, but yet some of them are. That there is literally a unseen war against information that, like I have. I mean, you have to realize, and I didn't realize at the time, but I have photographs of, of an, a creature that shouldn't exist. Right. I have, I, and during the topical examination, I didn't say, but I took blood samples and tissue samples from his wound, from the head wound, and skin samples. We put them in a sample freezer, and we took that away. We, we, as we were knowing people were going through our house, we, we took that out of our you know, realm so right. nobody would know where it was. Um, later on, when I, you know, just we have to kind of jump around here. Sure. I finally w met with a man named Robert Wraith, who became the the co-author of this book that that we wrote, which is called Link: An Extraterrestrial Odyssey, which is basically a journal of what happened to me—good, bad, and indifferent. I made a lot of mistakes. I, I didn't know what to do, but nevertheless, that's what I did. And it's all in this little book. If people want to know the facts, and I'm not saying speculation, the facts, you need to read that little book. It's cheap. It's on the Internet. You can get it at Amazon, Kindle for yes. about 10 bucks. Yep. You know? It's, and it's available what, that way. And and let me finish. Sure. That No, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> pardon me. Pardon me. But... But there is so much happened, Brian, and this is what people don't realize, is is that during those nine days, things were happening so quickly that when I found out that my office had been dismantled, I called the administrator of the hospital and I asked for Dr. Jonathan Reed. And they said one moment, and the person came back on the phone and said, we have no Dr. Jonathan Reed listed in our hospital. That person is not employed in this hospital. So you started to disappear. You were disappeared. Well, they, they were getting rid of you like a Bob Lazar. They within were nine days, all of my scholastic records at the university's level where I went were gone. All the microfish was gone. Three different universities gone. Wow. 
all of my scholastic records, all of my achievements, all of my grades, gone. Okay, all of my bank accounts, gone. All of my passport and and any other identification and credit cards, gone, gone. That's Erased. insane. That is insane. Exactly. And you ask yourself, when you hear that, you say, who has the power to do that? Who has that kind of power? The only one that I can come up with is the government. Yep. So I'm some faction of the government started to erase me. Now, why? Why would they do that? Now, I'm thinking logically. This is years later. I'm thinking, why would that be important? Well, people said, because you had physical evidence. You had clear daylight photographs you have videotape of an alien that finally ended up moving on the tape you can actually see his eyes blinking he was literally playing possum all those days when i was taking him in and out of the freezer he, and other people were looking i thought it was dead but it wasn't dead you're actually it was it and, and but i have all that right and i and, found something else with the body I found a little silver device, and some people call it the bracelet. I call it the link artifact, because I believe this was originally on the arm of this little guy, Freddy, probably when my dog jumped up trying to defend me and knocked it off of his wrist. Therefore, he couldn't escape. He right. couldn't use any of this technology to escape. So it was just a comedy of circumstance that happened. This thing fell on the ground. It was about six feet from the body. I saw it. At first, I thought it was a bent uh, pop can, like a soda can. Right. And it kind of has a look still, to it. And and you have pictures of it. Yes. we're gonna. And, they should be coming up uh, behind you right now. But, yes. Right. You know, it kind of reminds us of, like, like in back in that day, 96, when Pepsi right. was coming around, a Pepsi type of, like, soda can. It had the kind of, like, same graphics. And it's it's very interesting, you know, how it worked out. But, yeah, I, I, we well, can see it. Make, to make a long story short, <clears throat> when I had left town... And they, and they had given me this name of these people. These people helped me. They brought me back to health. And they said, Jonathan, what you have experienced would help a lot of other people if they knew what you went through. Because there's a lot of other people going through the same kind of tragedy where they're practically losing their mind. You know, you should think about you know, writing this down or maybe even talking to some of these people. And initially I said, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to even be involved. I don't even want to think about it. But little by little, it made sense. It made tremendous amounts of sense. So I ended up asking them if somebody could help me write this, because I'm not an author. I mean, I'm good at writing papers and right. medical journal information, but I'm really not an, uh, a good writer. So they gave me a name. Uh, in fact, they gave me five names, and I called a couple of them. And the third one I called was this guy named Robert Wraith, who at the time was living in California. And I talked to him, and I said, I've had something happen in my life that I need help to chronicle this. And I said, it's very bizarre. I don't know if you want to be involved with it. 
but I'd like to talk to you. And he said, okay. He said, all right. And he said he'd fly up that day. He'd fly to wherever I was to talk to me. And he did. We met in a hotel lobby. He came in, sat down. He said, okay, I'm ready. He was chain smoking at the time. You could smoke in those days. Yes. Um, and, and we talked for hours. And I had the pictures with me. And I told him what had happened. And, and he smoked some he, more. <laughs> and he, he knew that, that I had been through hell. He could see it. And he actually finally said, yes, I will help you. Yes. And he was, he was amazed. He was astonished. But he also got it. He got the, the reality that it needed to be chronicled in some kind of order. And again, even talking with you, Brian, right. it's hard to, to get everything in at the same moment because so much happened. As uh, soon as I got with Robert, Robert helped me get back to health. He helped my, he force-fed fed me. And he said, look, you got to eat. We're going to do that. I mean, he actually came up, got an apartment close to where I was and said, you know, you can live here. We can do this together so you don't have to leave. I mean, he just became the right. best mother I could ever imagine. He's a great, great guy. Yep. Robert Wraith. And, and he is the co-author of the book. And he made it alive. He made, he made what I experienced come alive in the reader's mind and it's it's extremely important to read the book and i don't care if you buy it you can even get it in a library because we donated it to like i right. don't know a thousand libraries and we'll put uh, up a couple of links to the book and where you can acquire it both free as well as paid so it's i mean if everybody has kindles now take right. the book just read it yeah, I mean, trust I mean, me it's important even, you can even read it on your smartphone Yes, so I mean, it, it's it's a no-brainer at this point. Anything you can read it on your computer, smartphone, whatever. But let me say, Brian, because people need to know that this stuff kept happening. Strange things kept happening. So I'm getting better. I'm giving Robert the information out of. I had like 1,500 pages that we finally wrote. You know, literally hand wrote that he said this is way too much. We got to cut it down. <laughs> You know, we have to go back and figure out what's most important. So the book is about the first nine days. Wow. That's literally what the book is about. And it's only a couple hundred pages. It's a very easy read. It's very simple. It's definitely not a textbook. Can you hold the book up one more time for us if you have it in front of you so people can take a look at it? Yep, blink. And uh, yep. it's an extraterrestrial odyssey. And I know right. it's on Amazon. So um, absolutely, and it's and like I said, it's available everywhere, and it's not expensive. But let me say, when Robert was helping me, and we were writing the book, we were literally writing it from a manuscript form. He came home one day after buying some food for us, and he said, "We got to do something. We got to talk to this guy on the radio." And I said, what do you mean, talk to somebody on the radio? He said, well, there's this guy named Art Bell. Yep. And he has this program called Coast to Coast. It's on every night, you know, and it's exactly what we're talking about. That's what he talks about. And I, that was kind of the last thing I wanted to do. 
was to to talk about this and he said Jonathan this guy is great he will not embarrass you he will just let you talk a lot like you Brian and I appreciate your your candor and your style Art Bell was absolutely the quintessential interviewer on oh, the yes. radio I think you would agree 100% and with this so, and with every genre but specifically that was a perfect fit for you so what happened and it's and it's amazing what happened is Robert borrowed somebody's fax machine and in the day oh back in the day and age it was a standalone fax machine that looked like kind of a big typewriter looking <laughs> and you plugged it in to the phone line and you could send literally like an email but it was a fax paper <laughs> right paper to somebody else's paper and it would print at their house well Art Bell had a deal where he wanted people to send him stuff in fax and Robert said okay this is what we're gonna do so he took one piece of paper with a great big felt pen and said Art do you want to take a ride and that was his favorite logo from the movie contact and I'd never seen the movie but Robert had right. seen all that stuff and he wrote art what if we had the evidence what if we had the photographs what if we had the negatives what if we had videotape of an alien creature what if we actually had the body what would what would what do we do would this interest you <laughs> Within, within two Here's minutes up. of him sending that fax to Art, we were listening on the radio, not assuming he was going to say anything, but he immediately did. Wow. Right in the middle of his music, he stopped the music. He says, well, I just got this fax you know, from this guy, <laughs> and let me read it to you. And he reads it on the air. And so he, he said, I don't know if this is real or not, but I'm, the guy put his phone number on here, and I'm going to call him. You know? And he did. He called him and and talked to Robert, and that's that's all recorded. That's there for posterity. Yep. And that's how it started. And he said, Art finally said, "Well, would Jonathan be willing to come on the show next week?" You know. And Robert said, "Sure, sure." And and you know, I'm looking at Robert like a deer caught in the headlights, <laughs> not knowing what to do. You know, and but Robert was cool. He just answered his questions very straightforward, and Art Art just said, "All right, this is great. Let's do this." Yep. You know, and within I think three days, we were sitting like I'm sitting now, without the video, right? But on the telephone, telling him this exact same story, what had happened, the order that it happened in, and and he was so, like you. Brian, he was so comforting and so encouraging to let me and allow me to tell the story. And because of that, that's why I have gone around the world with this. Uh, the book wasn't even ready. I mean, we didn't have it out. It wasn't printed yet. But yet people were saying, you know, you need to make a book. And Art says, well, they are. They are making a book. Give them time, you know. And finally, you know, we've been on art four different times, sometimes for four hours at a time. I mean, I had other witnesses with me. I had my landlord that saw my house ransacked and saw what it looked like. And I mean, real solid evidence, testimonies of people I worked with, 
right. all kinds of things. But nevertheless, we'd done his show, and because of that, it went boom and became world known. And all of a sudden, art was art was acting as our emissary, and because I didn't have anything, I didn't have a computer or email right. or anything, and he took all this information and he had bags of mail that they'd written to him, you know, saying, you know, we want to buy your book. Here's a blank check. Fill it in. Send it when you get it printed, you know. And so finally, we we said. Okay, we're get, you know the book is almost done. It's going to be done. People just overwhelmingly sent their their blank checks. I never ever got a bad check. Yeah. We initially sold initially because of that Art Bell thing. We initially sold nine hundred thousand copies. You know, on on a business side of me, that you know that that's that's amazing. I mean that is just out of this it's world amazing. One of, it's one of the biggest, you know, self-published books as far as sales go, without spending any money for advertising. So it, you know, it's a triumph. It's a great triumph, and I'm I'm proud of that. And Robert did a fabulous job in helping me chronicle it, and all the people involved. I mean, I I slept in the in the publisher's office where they were printing the book to make sure it was done right to make sure there were corrections that I could be there I didn't want to be doing it on the phone I didn't right. have a car so I just went there I just lived in Iowa for you know a week while they put this thing together but it sold outstandingly and I had people you know taken practically truckloads of books to, to, the, to the mail to the yep. post office to mail them out because we didn't have you know distribution we didn't have any of that so we had to do it by hand and I had volunteers doing this and and it just went crazy and from that from those art bell shows other things happened people started saying well we want you to be our keynote speaker at the international UFO Congress you know in two right. months you know, and I said, what's an international UFO, UFO. conference? <laughs> I'd never heard of it. Right. And so we had to look into that. And I went and I, I was reluctant to do it because I knew there were still people after me. There were still people kind of hunting me. And, and but we found a way to do it. And that's where we released the book publicly. And it was a very, very big triumph for me. Uh, it felt good. I got a lot of response back from from literally thousands of people who said, thank you. Thank you for writing this. Thank you for taking the time, you know, it's, to care about right. other people. It's, it, this, this, this whole thing, with, with, you know, I feel terrible for the for the experience that you had, the fact that, that people were trying to eliminate you, not only electronically or 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 you know socially, electronically, uh, professionally, they were trying to kill this man. They were trying to kill you, and they've made several attempts. You've gotten shot. This is yeah. some serious stuff. They don't. They, they don't. You know, there's no reserve when you, someone is out there to target you, to shoot you, to shut you up, to do whatever to stop you. You have the smoking gun. You have that that information, um, 
And, well, we, and we figured we figured initially that once I released all this publicly, that that it would lessen that it would become if it became public, then, you know, probably nobody would do anything to me. Well, it, it didn't work that way. No. It got worse. In fact, you know, I have what I call a team of people with, with my security and my friends around me. I don't go anywhere alone. Yep. Some of them have died. Some of them have been killed in the last 22 years. Uh, this is a real serious thing, but there's also a good side to this that we haven't even talked about. And the good side is that I've become aware of this reality. I mean, I used to be a square guy right. who lived inside a medical box of knowledge and who didn't even think outside that box. Well, now... I know what's outside that box. I know that we live with other intelligent beings that are probably far superior to us. But yet there's a war going on. There's a war uh, jockeying for position of who's going to control things in this earth, on this earth. That there are many, many races. I've dealt with three different ones constantly. And we can talk about that, yes. too. Um, the Link Artifact. When I initially you know, met with the people that I call the Alliance who helped me, brought me back to health, they said to me, finally, Jonathan, we know you have some items. We don't want to take them from you, but they're really important that they don't get lost. We have people that can help you with that. We can we can even help analyze it. You can go with it. You can never let it out of your sight, and we'll do that for you. They flew me to Osaka, Japan. I was just about to go there. They did a metallurgy test at the University of Osaka. You know, scientists, tremendous scientists, where they did literally a uh, almost a, a, a date chronicling the material that it's made out of and a breakdown of all of the isotopes and and particles that this thing is made of and it's an incredible device it's like nothing you could imagine it's made of layers and layers of uh, tiny almost plant-like fibers that are alive this is They're 1999 like correct when you're getting this it's, examined yes. Yes, this was in 1999. And, and, and I, I could be wrong about my, my, my timeline, but publicly, civilian-based, there was yes. no nanotechnology. There was no biological no. nanotechnology well, either. They, they barely had talked about nanotechnology. Right. That was something that might happen in the future. This is the horizon, yeah. Right. Well, these guys, the scientists that were looking at this said, this is nanotechnology. In, in a state of the art, this device is alive, it's running, it's working. Hey, this is Brian Bowden. I want to extend a deep thanks to Purple Planet. You guys rock. You're listening to Noble Boomy, where we explore deep inside the Goblin universe. The opinions expressed on Noble Boomy are of that of the host and his guests. 